So if you go to Dort, I think the big thing to ask is what's the goal? The goal in a synod like Dort is to end up being crystal clear about what's wrong with Arminian teaching and equally clear what's right about Reformed teaching. And in that kind of context, in that question, the more scholastic method was the best way to answer the question. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. You know, there's a period of church history that I really fear many Christians and pastors, even students and scholars, are just not aware of, or perhaps if they have heard of it, they are not familiar with it. And this is uh, an era that we sometimes call Reformed Orthodoxy. Or perhaps you've even heard a more technical term thrown around, such as Reformed Scholasticism, or Sometimes the post-Reformation reformers is another phrase that gets used. This is the period just after some of those first and second generation reformers in the 16th century that bleeds into the 17th and even the 18th century. And it's a period that often is forgotten, uh, much like the medieval scholastic period uh, before the Reformation. And that, I think, is to our detriment because, uh, I can say this as a theologian, uh, this period is one of the most fruitful, producing some of the most important uh, Reformed thinkers uh, that we are indebted to to this day. Some of my favorite theologians come out of this era. You think, for example, of someone like Francis Turretin and his massive institutes in which he's asking some of the most difficult questions and giving some of the most profound and succinct and concise answers. Or perhaps if we think of even Puritanism, we might put our finger on someone like John Owen and ask how Owen relates to this era that we are talking about and how he becomes so pivotal for so much of what comes next. Well, I have asked Ryan McGraw to come on the Credo podcast and to talk to us, even define reform scholasticism and explain why reform scholasticism is actually so crucial to theology today and why we should even consider retrieving it first and foremost. Uh, you may know Ryan from some of his writings. Uh, he is a professor. He's actually the Morton H. Smith Professor of Systematic Theology at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He's written a number of books, uh, including Knowing the Trinity, Practical Thoughts for Daily Life. Uh, he's written some other books. Uh, one of my favorites is The Foundation of Communion with God, The Trinitarian Piety of John Owen a book that looks at John Owen's Reformed Spirituality. And he's also written a book called Reformed Scholasticism, Recovering the Tools of Reformed Theology, 
with TNT Clark. Ryan, uh, it's a real joy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today. Now, Ryan, I think that our listeners, especially if they've been following the podcast for, for some time, this phrase, reform scholasticism, won't surprise them. But I imagine for a lot of listeners, even if they've heard the phrase, they're not quite sure what it means. And they're not quite sure why it's so, why these reform scholastics are so significant. Because if we're honest, I think a lot of times the literature that keeps coming off the presses is on anything but the reform scholastics, <laughs> though more and more there are encouraging signs. So let's just maybe start there and talk about, maybe even define for us, Ryan, what is a reform scholastic? When are these individuals living? And, you know, sometimes phrases get used in very ambiguous ways, but what is the difference, say, between Reformed Orthodox and Reformed Scholastic? Yeah, there's a lot of questions there. So I uh, actually teach an elective course on Reformed Scholasticism at Greenville Seminary, and it's ended up gaining a lot of traction and interest from students. But usually when I first tell people that one of my favorite courses to teach is on Reformed Scholasticism, I get odd looks. <laughs> Partly because of the term scholasticism, uh, which almost has served as something of a historic theological curse word yes. in many circles. But basically what this period is looking at is Reformed theology as it was taught in the schools or primarily in universities from around 1560 to the middle of the late 18th century. And when we think about a topic like this, one reason why it's important is many people may not realize that what we would call systematic theology mostly appeared in Latin theological works from this time period, about 1560 to, say, 1790. And what that means is with the loss of Latin language in the Western world today, we effectively end up being cut off from most of the Reformed systematic theology that was done up to about Charles Hodge. And so one reason why studying Reformed scholasticism is important is what we're doing is asking, in some ways, uh, how do you get from John Calvin in Geneva to Francis Turretin in Geneva about 100 years later, mm. and people will debate whether the theology of the two men is compatible, but anyone who tries to read both is immediately going to realize there's a different style involved, and a large part of that is the development of the Reformed University system and how these men taught theology largely to ministerial students. And so at the end of the day, what Reform Scholasticism aimed to do was to convey Reform theology in the schools for the next generation of ministers. In terms of our vocabulary, basically this period from the 1560s and onward is largely marked by Reformed confessionalization. So if you think about the 1560s period, 
This is where uh, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Scots Confession, and others are starting to appear and define what orthodoxy or right thinking looks like in a Reformed context. And scholasticism then refers to the method that these authors and teachers used to convey Reformed orthodoxy in the content of the schools. So Reformed orthodoxy is defined by confessional theology and is a little bit broader. Uh, Scholasticism specifically refers to a method of teaching that people use to convey orthodoxy in the schools. Mm. Now, Ryan, the language of scholasticism, like you said, oftentimes it's used in such a pejorative sense, right? It's used almost as an insult. But actually, when we look at scholasticism in its depth and its breadth, going back to, say, the medieval period, it's a very rich and fruitful period. And uh, maybe sometimes the assumption when the word scholasticism is used in a negative way, sometimes the assumption is, well, of course, that can't have anything to do with what it means to be uh, Protestant or even Reformed. So take us back to the Middle Ages and, and just talk to us briefly here about what is a scholastic and what exactly is the method they're doing? Because th- perhaps that'll set us up well for the type of method that the reform, so many of these reformed theologians are using. Yeah, one thing that begins to happen in the post-Reformation period that pulls back into the Middle Ages is that as uh, reformed and Lutheran teachers began to develop university curricula, as I said, to convey their, their own brands of confessional theology, they began to look for precedents as as a good teacher usually does, you know, when, when we start teaching classes, often we'll ask friends and others what they're doing, what they're acquiring, what methods they're using, how they convey information. And what often happened in this period is that Reformed and Lutheran, and for that matter, Roman Catholics, tended to look back to the earlier university system uh, largely beginning around the 11th century. And scholasticism refers to the method by which teachers conveyed information by making careful distinctions. Um, often, this took the form of what was known as disputations, where the professor would pose a topic, and basically students would then have to define the question and tell the professor what it was, what it wasn't. And then uh, basically after they defined their position, they would contrast it to opponents' positions and begin to refute the arguments of their opponents. Um, In a reform context, the way that would look would be primarily from Scripture and secondarily from, say, the Church Fathers. And then there would be a series of positive statements where the student would present uh, the answer to the question in their own terms. So the disputation was a medieval way of teaching. Uh, There's also the related questio or or question method, which is very similar, uh, but a question would be posed and then the student would have to make sense of what the parameters of the debate were. 
often there is a very specialized vocabulary that arose, uh, especially in the Middle Ages. And what this did was it gave people common terms to use and ways to understand one another. So even if they conveyed different theological ideas, they would still be able to understand each other and understand the kinds of distinctions that they were making. So scholasticism uh, could be a very precise and carefully worked out tool, uh, for example, for a Reformed author to explain and present the teaching of Scripture. But another characteristic here is uh, in the early Reformers, it's very common for us to read appeals to the early church fathers and then to refer to the medieval scholastics uh, in a derogatory way. In the post-Reformation period, that begins to take on different nuances. And in particular, sometimes the scholastics are still the bad guys when they're teaching something contradictory, say, to the Reformed doctrine of justification or uh, resting on the merits of Christ and not contributing merits of our own. But other times, scholasticism can be used very positively. Um, and I think the easiest and biggest example would be in the Reformed and Lutheran doctrine of the attributes of God and the Trinity. Because there, it's uh, it's fair to say there's a self-conscious and almost straightforward carryover uh, with some modifications and additions from people like Thomas Aquinas and others to set a benchmark for how they treat the doctrine of God. So in Reformed scholasticism, you could say there is an expansion of Reformed Catholicity in the sense that uh, these are people with a Protestant view of Scripture, where Scripture is superior to tradition and the only magisterial authority. And as people read in that context the traditions of the church with a, a ministerial or teaching authority, um, they begin to appropriate and benefit from all the centuries of Christian history and not just the early church. Mm. Now, Ryan, when we refer to these Reformed scholastics, oftentimes their writings are so—you mentioned the word distinctions. They are making so many of these distinctions in order to properly define or even defend uh, what they believe is orthodoxy itself, especially when it comes to, say, the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, or perhaps even uh, the existence of God. Now, some of these distinctions, yes, go back to the medieval scholastics. We think, for example, of a range there, the high Middle Ages uh, is such a fruitful time when you have everyone from, say, an Anselm to Thomas Aquinas and others. But uh, there's a whole story here, isn't there, with the way that Aristotle is being used and uh, this isn't just in the medieval period, but this continues to be the case after the Reformation with so many of these Reformed scholastics. In fact, there's an interesting story here, right? Because even someone like Philip Melanchthon, who 
is very uh, explicit in some of his criticisms of the scholastics when he turns around to actually establish the university curriculum that he's been put in charge of, he finds he can't escape Aristotle. <laughs> that Aristotle, yes, he may disagree with him at points, but so many of, maybe even if it's not the ideas, the, the distinctions and the concepts and the categories, the Aristotelian categories that are being used, these actually are quite necessary. Um, there's this one point where Melanchthon uses language that's really strong to say this is quite important for not just the university curriculum, but even uh, the task of theology itself. So, Ryan, talk to us now. We should qualify here that Aristotle is not the only one, and his philosophy is not as if he's the only one in view. There's a whole other story here with other types of philosophy, especially as we get closer to the Enlightenment. But let's just start with Aristotle and uh, maybe you can help us understand this. Why is it that Reformed scholastics in particular, many of them find Aristotle's categories to be so instrumental to not just articulating orthodoxy, but even trying to defend Reformed theology itself? Yeah, and I think as we talk about things like Aristotle, and it brings us into the broader category of the relation of theology and philosophy, several things come to mind. When an author like Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages or uh, later Reformed scholastic authors use Aristotelian categories, this isn't the same thing as adopting Aristotle's philosophy. And I can give a bunch of examples of, of where they amended and rejected or subtracted or added to different aspects of, of Aristotle. But there was a fairly utilitarian approach to the use of Aristotle's categories. And there's several reasons for this. One obvious one would be if you're conversant with sources throughout Christian history, at least since around the time of Thomas Aquinas, you're going to have uh, Aristotelian categories woven into theological discussions. So when you're looking for ready-made distinctions, in some ways, they're already there and presented in Aristotelian uh, terms. Again, the attitude is if these categories work, then you use them. If they don't work, then you reject them. Some of these we might be familiar with in an incidental way. So, for example, maybe many listeners have heard uh, the Roman Catholic distinction with the Lord's Supper uh, between substance and accidents. So the substance in that theory of the bread and wine transform into the body and blood of Christ, but the external qualities, it smells like bread, it tastes like bread, it feels like bread, for example, uh, remain the same. And so normally substance and accidents would go together. So by the external qualities, you would see that the thing you're holding is actually bread because it smells and, t- and feels and tastes like bread. But the Roman Catholics created a uh, division in the transformation of the elements into the body and blood of Christ. So they used Aristotle to try to explain to people why it sure didn't look and taste and smell like a human body, but instead bread. 
And so obviously reform authors would, would reject that kind of distinction in the case of the Lord's Supper. However, they might use the same distinction when they're talking about God and his attributes. So, for example, many Reformed authors would commonly say there are no accidents in God. And uh, obviously the word accident means something very different for us today. But they, what they mean is everything in God is God. Mm. So God is a simple being not made up of parts. And basically he has substance but no accidents. So where they might reject the distinction in one case, they might apply it. Uh, somewhere else. And there are other places where they added their own categories or modified things along the way. There were different attempts in the 16th and 17th century to integrate other forms of organizing material, such as Peter Ramus, a French philosopher and theologian, who basically, to oversimplify his views, divided everything into sets of two in hopes of simplifying a logical process of reasoning. And sometimes that worked pretty well. So, for example, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the catechism in a big way is divided into what man is to believe concerning God and the duty God requires of man. And the advantage is a simple twofold uh, division is easy to remember and the logic is easy to follow. There are other big systems of theology, such as Amandus Polanus in uh, Switzerland in 1610, where the Ramus model of breaking things into twos is easy to follow, but it's also easy to get lost as he divides everything into two ad nauseum for page after page after page. And so again, the content is, is always solid, but the, um, the method can vary at times. And so there's a preference for, for Aristotle, I said, first for historical reasons, but also in terms of just common grace, common sense principles, a lot of the things that Aristotle wrote simply made sense to people in terms of dividing the world. And the only uh, last comment that I'll, I'll make there is I'm, I'm doing a lot of talking here. Um, is that people need to recognize that Renaissance and scholasticism were not competing movements, but developed together. And the Renaissance, going back to the sources, developing a science, focusing on studying the classics, also used Aristotelian categories. And we still have remnants of that, even in modern science, the fact that most technical terms are Latin, and the fact that we use terms like genus and species are still carries over from uh, Aristotle. And so it illustrates that Aristotelianism was a tool. And if the tool fits the job, then you use it. And if it doesn't, you make a new tool or you use a different one. Now, that relationship is quite crucial to clarify because I think you're exactly right. You know, it's not all that different. I think sometimes... You know, as historians, you know, rightly so, we want to put things into very clear categories. But, and you've made this point, Ryan, that even when we are on the rise of the Reformation, well, the Reformers 
came into this century, the 16th century, and they were very much medieval, late medieval men, as we we call them. And so something similar might be said, as you just mentioned, even with the Renaissance, uh, we sometimes make this hard, fast distinction between scholasticism and uh, the Renaissance, or sometimes, uh, and you've written about this too, we do this with the monastic orders and, and monasticism, as if scholasticism and monasticism are these very opposed movements. But you've made a, um, an excellent point, and, and others have as well, that, well, we have to be careful there because someone like, say, Thomas Aquinas, well, on the one hand, yes, we might put him in the category of a medieval scholastic. But he, too, has a lot to say, and even his life embodies, in many ways, a certain uh, type of monastic approach to spirituality. So, so, so much of this overlaps. I think it's a good reminder that we have to be careful of making dichotomies that are, are too strict. One dichotomy, though, that comes to mind is when we come back to the reform scholastics in particular— and and you even hinted at this uh, a minute ago, there tends to be a school of thought and certain certain scholars in the past who have said, well, the reform scholastics, say, of the 16th and early 17th centuries, well, they are actually betraying uh, the, the methods and the theology of the reformers before them. Um, for example, we could think of, say, Calvin as opposed to Theodore Beza, or even uh, you mentioned Francis Turretin, for example. Ryan, speak to to this for a second. So sometimes this is called a Calvin versus the Calvinist approach, but but this can occur not just with Calvin, but on really a, a broader scale between just the reforms classics in general and the reformers that came before them. Should we buy into that type of contrast, or or are there reasons to actually see? some continuity there besides the discontinuity? I think as a overall approach, we're going to see in most time periods, including this one, elements of continuity and discontinuity of, of thought and method with earlier authors. When I say discontinuity, though, we need to be careful what we mean. So, for example, John Calvin placed a great stress on a covenant between God and Adam. And people have debated uh, historically whether or not Calvin taught what later came to be called as the covenant of works, where Adam was in covenant with God as a federal representative. So when he died, his guilt is imputed to all mankind making a parallel between Adam and Christ so that when Christ fulfills the covenant of grace, his righteousness is then imputed to his elect people. And an element of continuity and discontinuity in terms of of content, discontinuity would basically be arguing that the covenant of works was a departure from Calvin's pure theology of grace. And he didn't treat a a particular doctrine of the covenant of works like later authors did. But the other side would argue, and I would hold to this as well, that there's a natural development of reformed ideas on questions such as that one that better harmonize what these people are reading in scripture. And so there's not so much a break 
with the earlier theology, but if there's an element of discontinuity, then it's often a matter of sharpening ideas and developing things further and maybe even adding categories that better explain what Reformed theologians are trying to teach, in this case about works and grace. So there's going to be discontinuity in the form and the content on some level, but you could read discontinuity as a radical departure on the one hand, or you could read it as a positive and natural development on the other. And there'd be examples with methodology as well. I think the biggest example would be in the early Reformation period, you tended to have systems of doctrine like John Calvin and Heinrich Bullinger, and maybe a name people don't know as well, Wolfgang Musculus and others, who basically presented the Bible's teaching on all of its major doctrines, but they didn't necessarily have a proper introduction of first principles. In other words, if you step back and said, what are our basic presuppositions and foundational ideas without which we can't believe anything else? That's where you start getting people like Franciscus Junius and others in the 1590s and following that step back from the system. And the development is now we're going to define our first principles. God is the foundation of all being. Scripture is the foundation of knowing. Theology is the doctrine of living to God because it's more than knowledge, but it includes piety and devotion of the heart. So the character of theology, the character of the theologian both become important if we're going to study theology. And these things become very explicit at the beginning of the system. The goal of theology becomes the beatific vision or being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in heaven. And everything we do on earth is pushing us towards that goal. And all of these things in one way or another, such as is theology more theoretical or practical? Is it science? Is it wisdom? Is it something else? The beatific vision, all of these things were current discussions, not just in medieval theology, but early church theology. So I think what happens is, as you look at the sources, you begin to discover, as, as Richard Muller did famously, that there's more development and compatibility than departure. And in tongue-in-cheek way, I usually tell my students the Calvin versus the Calvinist theory is something like this, that basically John Calvin is the pristine Garden of Eden, basically Reformed scholasticism is the fall, and maybe Theodore Beza or a later Geneva theologian like Lambert Denal is Satan. Uh, who's basically the culprit. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a bit colloquial and tongue-in-cheek, but that's more or less how the Calvin versus the Calvinist uh, thesis has, has read things. And I should add, we're talking about reform scholasticism, but the same movements were happening in Lutheran theology at the time as well. And the same kinds of debates have surrounded the relationship between Reformation Lutheranism and post-Reformation Lutheranism also. Mm. Ryan, can you give us maybe one or two examples of a reform scholastic, perhaps it's one that you especially appreciate, as a way of, to help our listeners put some flesh on on the, the bones, the skeleton that you've, you've really helpfully described? Yeah, if I can mention a few. Generally, 
as historians think about this period, they divide it into early, high, and late orthodoxy. And maybe if I can give uh, one of each. Yes, please. Um, in terms of early orthodoxy, we're talking roughly 1560 to around 1620. And the benchmarks there are the early confessions like the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism. The benchmark moving from that into the high Orthodox period is the Synod of Dort. And if anyone's familiar with Dort and has read it alongside uh, the other two documents I mentioned, you immediately see on the surface the development of scholastic distinction style and something approaching a disputation where you have the affirmations, negations, and, and both sides of the question are stated. So in that first period, one theologian that stands out, as I mentioned in Basel, Switzerland, is Amandus Polanus. Polanus stands out for a lot of reasons. I already mentioned his use of twofold division of, of Ramism. His theology as a whole also divides things into what man is to believe concerning God and the duty God requires of man, uh, like Westminster later does. One other reason why Polanus is important historically is together with William Whitaker in England. He was one of the first Reformed authors to respond at length to the Roman Catholic theologian Robert Bellarmine on the doctrine of Scripture. And as Bellarmine was seeking to dismantle Protestant theology at its foundations, Polanus and Whittaker devoted a lot of time to defending the doctrine of Scripture and the Reformed use of Scripture and tradition, distinguishing it from Roman Catholic views at great length in its scholastic form. So Reformed doctrine of Scripture begins to, to come to its own in, in a more uh, recognizable form like full orb form during these these periods. So uh, just to get a feel for it, Polanus's one volume, small print, two column text is about 3000 pages. Mm. And about 800 pages of that is the doctrine of scripture. So he's devoted a substantial amount of time to the doctrine of scripture because of the period in which he lived. And so this is one of the primary important texts from the early Orthodox period. In terms of high Orthodoxy, there's almost too many names to mention. Some will know, like Turretin and Owen, and others I could mention, even Samuel Rutherford, uh, the Scottish theologian in his day, was more known for his scholastic theology than, than he now is for his letters. But another theologian that stands out in the mid-17th century in Utrecht in the Netherlands is Gisbert Votius. Votius wrote five large volumes of disputations and four large volumes uh, on Politica Ecclesiastica, which is on the doctrine of the church. Votius tended to attract students from all over the European world. Even one black African student from South Africa uh, that came. A friend of mine did his, his master's thesis on this man named El Capitan. And Votius tended to train a large number of prominent Reformed ministers, names we would know like Herman Vitius, Wilhelmus Abrakel, Peter van Maastricht, 
others that are, are coming into English now. He invited Samuel Rutherford to come teach in Utrecht at one point, but Rutherford declined at two points, actually. And Votius's Politica Ecclesiastica tended to influence Reformed ecclesiology or doctrine of the church for quite a while. So even when James Bannerman, the Scottish theologian in the 19th century, wrote his two volumes on the Church of Christ, his three most important sources that he, he mentions in the appendix are Calvin's Institutes, Turretin's Institutes, and Botius's Politica Ecclesiastica. So that might be a name we don't know as well, but stretching all the way into 19th century Scotland, uh, now Banner of Truth has reprinted Bannerman. And so we might see some of those names cropping up. Polanus and Votius, as well as Maastricht, will appear rhythmically. If you're reading, say, Herman Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics, and these were some of his favorite authors as well. So that shows the far reach of the, the Latin theology. The last one I'll just mention briefly is early 18th century. So this would be late orthodoxy. And what's happening now is with the onset of enlightenment, there's new ideas, new definitions of terms, new philosophies. People are wondering if you could replace Aristotelian logic with the logic of John Locke, for example. People are looking at Rene Descartes and others for ideas on how to argue for God's existence. And Bernardinus de Moor in the Netherlands, two generations removed from Votius, and he represents what you could call an arch-conservative approach in the uh, late Orthodox period, where most other authors are seeking to develop more modern philosophical ideas and reduce Christianity to a bare minimum, De Moore basically retains all the classic reform scholastic forms and distinctions and tries to pull it into a new century. Um, some things that stand out in De Moore and his theology is actually a lengthy commentary on his teacher, uh, Johannes Marcius's work. And seven volumes, he follows sort of the, the medieval model of commenting on the sentences and applies that to Marcus. And basically, uh, in the beginning, he ends up giving you a roadmap of how a Reformed person should read the Middle Ages. And there's an early, middle, late period. And he distinguishes authors and what they contribute and when things, uh, as we would say, really went off the rails. So that's interesting and helpful in itself. And he also begins to try to, to press a 17th century scholastic method into an 18th century context when really it's, uh, it's going out of style. Mm. So those would be a, a few different authors that would stand out. And, and De Moore, Stephen Dilday, has recently been translating De Moore's commentary on Marcius into English. So uh, Polanus is not English, neither is Votius. But their names worth knowing. Some of these other people I've, I've mentioned in passing, you can at least begin to get some of this stuff in English and see what I'm talking about. Hmm. Now, Ryan, as we bring things to a close here, uh, it might be helpful to also bring our listeners along as they are thinking through the relationship between those two words, right? Reformed and scholasticism. Because for many of them, 
It could be the case that they've been taught these two things are completely antithetical to one another. Perhaps we could take two uh, just quick examples of this and, and give you the opportunity to finish us off by adding some, some clarity and light uh, to this discussion. Because if we think that these two things are completely, totally opposed to one another, well, first of all, when we come to the Synod of Dort, which you just mentioned a minute ago, we end up in a difficult circumstance because uh, here is Dort and the very Synod itself, especially with the access we have now to so many of the documents, it's actually utilizing a scholastic method at times, sometimes even a disputation method, to try to make sense of the dispute between, say, the remonstrants and certain Reformed thinkers and ultimately arrive at a conclusion that will then be characteristic and definitive for uh, Reformed orthodoxy of, of that age. And then we come to another example of this, John Owen. Now, John Owen, we think of, uh, many will, will label a Puritan, but there are some Puritans who are also we could label them reform scholastics, though that is not always the case. But with John Owen, we see uh, a fascinating example of someone who's writing on a number of doctrinal topics, but he's at times utilizing the language, uh, the concept, sometimes even the theology of a scholastic like, say, Thomas Aquinas. Can you finish us out and just maybe reflect on these two examples and and how this should then give us a, a healthier understanding of Reformed scholasticism? Sure. And I think at this stage, as, as we're wrapping up, I can't overstress the importance of restating that scholasticism was a tool for these authors and servant rather than a master. Hmm. And so, in other words, using these tools the issue was, how can I convey the ideas I need to in the context that I need to? And maybe one thing to lead into to Dort and Owen, one of the earliest Reformed scholastic texts was by a man named Andreas Hyperius from Germany, and it was on theological method. And one of the things that Hyperius did that leads into Dort and John Owen is that he made a careful distinction between scholastic and popular theology. Uh -huh. And what he basically said was scholastic theology teaches you how to think well and popular theology teaches you how to preach well. Hmm. And the important thing here is that the two are connected. And I've had a lot of students over the years that have started studying Reformed scholasticism and then went back to their favorite Puritan books, for example, and now suddenly saw that these people in some ways were hiding their learning and not necessarily throwing out and <laughs> making, uh, making ostentatious everything that they knew and could say, but they were giving you the fruits. So being able to keep clear, careful distinctions in their minds, they then translate them into everyday man's English and basically give us these rich devotional expressions that don't lose their theological uh, precision, even while they're aiming at devotional warmth. Mm. And so that was the goal here. So if you go to Dort, I think the big thing to ask is what's the goal? Uh, the goal in a synod like Dort 
is to end up being crystal clear about what's wrong with Arminian teaching and equally clear what's right about Reformed teaching. And in that kind of context, in that question, the more scholastic method was the best way to answer the question. When you come to John Owen, one thing that I like about recommending John Owen to students, other than the fact that I uh, spent a lot of time with him and, and like him, is that Owen is one of the few English authors to actually write both popular and scholastic theology in English. Mm. And I don't know if, if anyone out there listening has had the experience of going and trying to read The Death of Death and The Death of Christ, only to feel like this is very difficult reading at points and a bit dense. And then to go and read The Mortification of Sin and in some ways say, what happened? What accounts for the difference? Normally, something like the death of death and the death of Christ would have been a Latin scholastic disputation. I don't know particularly why Owen chose to write some things like that in English where others didn't. He did write some in Latin too, but there's a, a very great difference in style between an academic disputation on Christ's death and a series of sermons preached to teach teenagers at Oxford how to kill indwelling sin. Another example would be looking at volume one of Owen's works. The first book is Christologia, which in many respects is a much more scholastic treatment of the person and work of Christ. And you can see by reading it that scholastic and devotional warmth are not mutually exclusive. But then the second book in that volume is Meditations on the Glory of Christ, where Owen is seeking to set forth the glory of the Savior, to teach his congregation how to meditate upon him and uh, pursue heaven and sanctification. So even in Owen's works, you, you see this back and forth pull between scholastic and popular. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.